You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the February 19th reading of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, as usual, there's a lot to get into in sports, both on and off the field. We just can't seem to get away from football. Got a couple of football articles here, and there are some changes in the coaching world. And we have an obituary about longtime Broncos broadcaster Larry Zimmer and some baseball news as well. So let's jump right in. This article by Jeff Lakewald, he's a senior writer for ESPN. It came out on February 6th on ESPN.com. The 2024 Pro Football Hall of Fame enshrinement class will honor defense as well as a player that many consider the best kickoff punt returner ever. The seven-member class of 2024 will include defensive end Julius Peppers, defensive end Dwight Freeney, and linebacker Patrick Willis. Devlin Hester, the NFL record holder for kickoff and punt returns for touchdowns, and wide receiver Andre Johnson will also be enshrined as modern-era selections. Linebacker Randy Gratishar, who played in his last game in 1983, and defensive tackle Steve McMichael, who retired after the 1994 season, were senior finalists selected to be enshrined. It's the second consecutive year at least three modern-era defensive players are in an enshrinement class. In 2023, other than the Hall's 15-member Centennial class, it was the first time that four modern-era defensive players had been enshrined in the same year. This year's class was chosen by the Hall's Board of Selectors in a virtual meeting. These seven Hall of Famers will be officially enshrined on August 3rd in Canton, Ohio. Peppers was a two-sport athlete at North Carolina, having played two seasons for the Tar Heels basketball team in addition to his All-American status with the football squad. He went on to become one of the NFL's most prolific pass rushers and is fourth on the official sack list with 159 and a half since sacks became an official statistic in 1982. The nine-time Pro Bowl selection finished with at least 10 sacks 10 times in 17 seasons and had at least 12 sacks three times. He also had 11 career interceptions, forced 32 fumbles, and knocked down 82 passes. Hester will be considered the first player who was primarily a returner to be selected for enshrinement. He had two 50-catch seasons in his 12-year career as a wide receiver and three seasons with at least 100 snaps on defense, but many consider Hester to be the best returner to have played in the NFL. Hester's 19 career regular season touchdown returns, 14 punt returns, and five kickoff returns are an NFL record, and he returned the opening kickoff in Super Bowl 41 for a touchdown. Hester is on a short list of players who was selected to two all-decade teams in his career, the 2000s and the 2010s, and he was chosen as one of the returners for the NFL's all-century team as part of the league's 100th anniversary. He is also the only returner ever to lead the league in both kickoff and punt returns twice. 
Freeney is 18th all-time in sacks with 125 and a half and was a seven-time Pro Bowl selection with his signature spin move. He had several se- seven seasons with at least 10 sacks and eight campaigns with at least four forced fumbles. Johnson, who was among three wide receivers, others included Reggie Wayne and Torrey Holt, who were finalists for the class of 2024. Johnson had seven Pro Bowl selections, 14,185 career receiving yards, and 70 receiving touchdowns. He played all but two of his 14 seasons with the Houston Texans. Johnson led the league in receptions and receiving yards twice, respectively, and had 21 games in his career with at least 10 receptions and at least 100 receiving yards. Many players had longer careers than Willis, who retired after eight seasons because of a painful toe injury that wouldn't heal, but few have been more productive or had decorated years. He was a seven-time Pro Bowl selection in his eight seasons and a five-time first-team All-Pro selection. Willis was selected to the All-Decade team of the 2010s, led the NFL in tackles twice, and had six 100-tackle seasons. Radishar, the Defensive Player of the Year in 1978 and a seven-time Pro Bowl selection, might have been the most decorated player in the Hall's senior pool. With Gratishar as the anchor in the middle of the fabled Orange Crush defense, the Denver Broncos were the league's top 10 in rushing defense, passing defense, total defense, scoring defense, and interceptions during his career. Gratishar was the first inside linebacker in a 3-4 defense to finish among the top three in voting for Defensive Player of the Year when he was third in 1977, and then the first inside linebacker in a 3-4 to win it in 1978. McMichael was part of the Chicago Bears defense, some in the league considered the best of the Super Bowl era. Released by the New England Patriots after a back injury limited him to six games as a rookie, McMichael went on to become one of the NFL's best interior pass rushers with 95 career sacks, including seven seasons with at least eight sacks. Overall, his 95.0 career sacks are the fourth most by a defensive tackle since 1982, trailing John Randell with 137.5, Aaron Donald with 111, and Warren Sapp with 96.5. Continuing on, here's another article. This one is by Mark Kisla of the Denver Post, and it came out on August 23rd, and it's basically a dive into Randy Gratishar. Better 35 years late than never, Broncos linebacker Randy Gratishar finally headed to the Hall of Fame. So happy he could cry. Randy Gratishar gently rubbed the aching shoulders on which the orange crush was built, one slobber-knocking tackle at a time. That's what my cost of playing football for the Broncos, Gratishar told me Wednesday, a smile as warm as the Colorado sun brightening every crag and crease on his 71-year-old face. Four long decades after he made the last of his 2049 bone-crushing tackles, but only five weeks removed from surgery number four to rebuild his right shoulder, Gratishar has finally knocked down the door to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All in God's timing, Gratishar said. 
about damn time, if you ask me. Granishar got a call Tuesday from the Hall with the good news a 12-person committee had reviewed long-overlooked candidates in a pool of senior players and submitted his name alongside Chicago Bears defensive tackle Steve McMichael and New York Jets receiver Art Powell for what's anticipated to be a rubber stamp approval during Super Bowl week for induction into the class of 2024. All a freaking eula. Football justice has been served even if it's long overdue. Only 10 linebackers in NFL history have 7 Pro Bowl selections, 20 interceptions, and 13 fumble recoveries to their names. Gratishar will be the 10th to be enshrined. He's the son of a grocer raised in a tiny Ohio burg called Champion Township, which sits only 60 miles away from the front door of the famous football museum in Canton. Gratishar, however, never dreamed as a teenager how far the sport might take him from his happy little corner of the world. In fact, when Ohio State came knocking to recruit him, the young linebacker's first reaction was, who's Woody Hayes? After tirelessly making the case for the face that made the Orange Crush famous, folks who have lived in Denver since it actually was a dusty old cow town can finally feel vindicated that the Rocky Mountain Thunder of 1977 was indeed heard beyond the borders of our fair state and will reverberate forever. Nobody in Broncos country, however, was more pleased and relieved by this awesome piece of news than Beth Gratishar, a woman who might have felt the pain of habitual rejection by the hall deeper than her husband. I wept. I wept far beyond tears, confessed Beth, a cardiac nurse by trade who has been there to mend the broken heart of a tough linebacker. I'm so happy for Randy because a couple of times in the past he was so close to being voted in, only to be disappointed. And it was just so crushing. Now, my heart is filled with joy for him. Gratishar is honest enough to admit the weight sometimes wore him out. What the heck's going on, he wondered, when bypassed for enshrinement year after year. What's taking them so long? Gratishar, however, steadfastly refused to let the chronic disappointment of NFL politics embitter him. He doesn't have an angry bone in him, Beth explained. Wait a hot minute. Aren't linebackers supposed to be made of nothing but angry bones? Yes, you're supposed to be angry playing linebacker, admitted Gratishar, chuckling at the memory of his on-field demeanor. But I also always picked up the ball carrier after every tackle and said, congratulations on a good run. And to tell the truth, most of the angry bones that made number 53 the most feared player ever to wear an orange and blue uniform are long gone. At my behest, Gratishar did a full accounting of the replacement parts in his body, the cost of being one of the most punishing tacklers ever to roam the gridiron. I've paid the penalty of playing football, Gratishar said. Because of the Broncos, here's what I am today. Right shoulder? replaced and retooled a total of four agonizing times. Left shoulder and both knees rebuilt with all new hardware. His left hip is now made of metal and plastic with surgery to do the same overhaul on his right hip on the docket. When I suggest to you Gratishar gave his body and soul for the glory of the orange crush, it is no exaggeration. With the Hall of Fame finally ready to immortalize him as a football god, was all the physical and emotional pain that he has endured the past 40 years worth it? Don't tell my wife, Gratishar said. 
but I would do it all again. And now he will finally get to put on the yellow jackets. Congratulations, Randy. So this article is entitled 2024 NFL Honors, Who Won the League's Biggest Awards? This article was posted on NFL Nation on February 8th. Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson secured his second MVP award after winning it in 2019. San Francisco star running back Christian McCaffrey won Offensive Player of the Year. Houston Texans rookie quarterback C.J. Stroud took home Offensive Rookie of the Year honors. Cleveland Browns defensive end Miles Garrett won his first Defensive Player of the Year award. Texans defensive end Will Anderson Jr. won Defensive Rookie of the Year. Browns head coach Kevin Stefanski was voted Coach of the Year for the second time. And Cleveland quarterback Joe Flacco was Comeback Player of the Year. So here's a look at who took home the awards and why. MVP goes to Lamar Jackson, the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. There was no surprise for the NFL's biggest individual award. Jackson was named MVP after being the betting favorite for the past six weeks. Jackson joined a select group in winning NFL Most Valuable Player for the second time. He became the fifth player to win multiple MVP awards in his first six seasons in the league. The others were Jim Brown, Kurt Warner, Brett Favre, and Patrick Mahomes. In leading the Ravens to an NFL Best 13-4 record, Jackson ranked in the top 10 this season in total QBR with 64.7, yards per pass attempts at 8, and touchdown-to-interception ratio of 3.4. He also led the NFL in yards per rush with 5.5, and and not just among quarterbacks. Continuing to be the NFL's best dual threat, he totaled 3,678 passing yards and 821 rushing yards, He is the only player to produce over 3,000 passing and 800 rushing multiple times, winning MVP in both seasons that he has accomplished this feat. The 2019-20 season and 2023-24. Jackson overtook San Francisco 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy as the MVP frontrunner on Christmas when he guided Baltimore to a 33-19 win at San Francisco. He then essentially secured the award a week later in a 56-19 route of the Miami Dolphins when he recorded a perfect passer rating of 158.3 and threw five touchdown passes. Offensive Player of the Year is Christian McCaffrey, a running back for the San Francisco 49ers. In his first full season with the Niners, McCaffrey delivered one of the most productive seasons in franchise and league history. He led the NFL in scrimmage yard per game with 126.4, scrimmage touchdowns of 21, rushing yards of 1,459, 114 first downs, and 44 runs of 10 or more yards while playing 16 games. Those numbers were enough to earn McCaffrey a Pro Bowl berth and first-team AP All-Pro honors as he also added his name to the NFL record books. McCaffrey boosted his total career games with a rushing and receiving score in the same game to 15, tied with Marshall Falk for the most in league history, and became the third player in NFL history to post more than 2,000 scrimmage yards in a season 
for two different franchises. Everyone has those gym rats who just work hard. We got a guy like that who's also one of the most talented people in the league, says Niners coach Kyle Shanahan. And moving over to Defensive Player of the Year, Miles Garrett, defensive end for the Cleveland Browns, is the Defensive Player of the Year. After several years contending for this award, Garrett finally got over the hump to capture his first NFL Defensive Player of the Year honor. He ranked just seventh with 14 sacks, but Garrett also spearheaded the NFL's best regular season defense. The Browns led the league in defensive efficiency, yards per game allowed with 267, and a three-and-out rate of 32.9%, among several other categories. Garrett also finished second in pass rush win rate with 30.5%, despite facing the third highest double team rate of 28.8%. The Browns won four in a row late in the year, culminating with a playoff clinching victory over the Jets on December 28. During that stretch, Garrett had 35 pass rush wins. Only one other edge rusher had more than 20, which is Pittsburgh's T.J. Watt and he had 26. I know the focus is on sack numbers, says general manager Andrew Berry. That really doesn't tell the whole story. He played at a really high level for us down the stretch. Offensive rookie of the year is C.J. Stroud, the quarterback for the Houston Texans. Stroud earned this award through the countless rookie records that he either tied or set. The former Ohio State standout led the Texans to their first divisional title since 2019 and was the first quarterback drafted in the top two of the draft since 1967 to win a playoff game in his rookie season. That win also made him the youngest to win a playoff contest, passing Michael Vick. Stroud set the record for most pass attempts without an interception to start a career with 191. He carried that momentum and also led the league in touchdown-to-interception ratio with 23-and-a-half. He finished the regular season with 4,108 passing yards, the third most for a rookie behind Andrew Luck with 4,374 in 2012, and Justin Herbert with 4,336 in 2020. His highest passing mark occurred in Week 9 against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, when he threw for 470 yards, the most ever by a rookie. Moving over to Defensive Rookie of the Year, and that is Will Anderson Jr. He's a defensive end for the Houston Texans. When Anderson came to the Texans, he wanted to set a standard that the rookies were here to change the culture. He was immediately impactful when he recorded a sack of Jackson in Week 1. The sack numbers slowed down, but he was still towards the top in advanced metrics. The number three pick ranked third in pass rush, winning rate of 25.8%. He also impacted the run game as he was sixth in run-stop win rate of 36% among defensive ends with at least 400 snaps. He finished the season with seven sacks, 10 tackles for a loss, and 22 quarterback hits despite suffering an ankle injury that made him miss two games. Coach of the year goes to Kevin Stefanski of the Cleveland Browns. The Browns have made the postseason just three times since returning to the NFL in 1999, 
Two of those came with Stefanski as head coach, and in both, including 2020, he was named Coach of the Year. Stefanski guided Cleveland through a turbulent regular season to an 11-6 record. The Browns suffered season-ending injuries to numerous key players, including quarterback Deshaun Watson with a shoulder injury and running back Nick Chubb with a knee injury. Cleveland also became the first team since 1987 to start five different quarterbacks in a season. Still, the Browns set a franchise record with a winning score in the final two minutes of regulation on five occasions. That starts with Kevin, says General Manager Barry. The way that he was able to lead and manage through challenges in adversity this year was absolutely phenomenal. I know that our organization is in really good hands both now and for this foreseeable future with him. Comeback Player of the Year is Joe Flacco, quarterback for who? The Cleveland Browns. Flacco went unsigned during the offseason, the preseason, and half of the regular season, but the 39-year-old former Super Bowl MVP finally got his chance following a season-ending shoulder injury to Deshaun Watson. Flacco signed with Cleveland on November 20th. Two weeks later, he got his first start with the Browns and became the first quarterback in NFL history to throw for more than 250 yards and multiple touchdowns in his first five games with the new team. Over those five starts, Flacco also led the NFL with 1,616 passing yards. With Flacco under center, Cleveland won four games in a row to clinch its first playoff appearance since 2020. I was so fortunate to become part of this team, he said, after Cleveland's 45-14 loss to the Houston Texans in the first round of the playoffs. To be given a chance to do this with those guys, I'm super grateful for it. So in that deep dive, you know how these guys came out on top. And in the NFL, that is certainly not easy. Well, the Commanders have a new head coach, Dan Quinn. This article by John Keem, he's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out on February 1st on ESPN.com from Ashburn, Virginia. The Washington Commanders once more have turned to a defensive-minded coach to turn their franchise around. Dan Quinn becomes the latest coach who tried to turn Washington into something that it hasn't been in a long, long time, a consistent winner. He replaces Ron Rivera, who was fired after four seasons and had been hired by previous owner Dan Snyder under a coach-centric model. New owner Josh Harris did not hire Quinn to be the ultimate football decision-maker. That job belongs to general manager Adam Peters. But Quinn's job will fill a lot of will require a lot of heavy lifting as the commanders have key holes that they need to fill. There's reason to believe that things can improve this time around, but there's little doubt that some of the roster issues that have plagued the organization for years haven't changed. Taking a closer look, commanders reporter John Keem answers three big questions about hiring Quinn, including what comes next. National reporter Dan Graziano dishes on what he's hearing about the hire, and draft analyst Jordan Reed spins it forward to the draft. Finally, front office analyst Mike Tannenbaum grades the hire. So here's a look at Washington's first hire under Harris. 
why Dan Quinn and what does he bring to Washington? And this is from John Keem. The most used word during the commander's search publicly and privately was leadership. Washington wanted a strong leader. One NFL coach who worked with Quinn said that he was as good as any coach he's been around at setting the standard for an organization. Another coach labeled him one of the best in the NFL, so he has numerous fans in the league. Quinn coached the Atlanta Falcons from 2015 to 2020. His career record isn't impressive. 43 wins against 42 losses, and he was 3-2 in the playoffs. But he displays the traits Washington wants in a head coach, someone who has the same vision for the organization as the general manager. Peters, the new GM, spent six seasons in San Francisco with coach Kyle Shanahan, who was Quinn's offensive coordinator in Atlanta for two seasons before becoming a head coach. Quinn developed a strong reputation as a defensive coordinator. When he was the Seattle Seahawks defensive coordinator in 2013 and 14, the Seahawks ranked first in yards and points allowed each season. But Quinn had inherited a group that had been first in points and fourth in yards allowed before he took over. He spent the past three seasons as the defensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys. In Dallas, he inherited a group that ranked 28th in points and 23rd in yards allowed. Under Quinn, the Cowboys improved to 7th and 19th, respectively, in those categories in his first season and ranked 5th in both areas this past year. Dallas created more turnovers at 93 than any other team during Quinn's three years as coordinator. Washington ranked 29th with only 55 takeaways during that same span. One current assistant coach whose team has faced Dallas praised Quinn for adjusting his scheme over the years. What's the first thing that Quinn must address in Washington? And this is John's team again. Finding a top offensive coordinator. While Quinn's downfall in Atlanta was his defense, the offense needs to be addressed first in Washington. The commanders will likely select a quarterback with the second pick in the 2024 draft, so it's imperative that Quinn has a well-developed offensive plan. That means not only the coordinator, but also the quarterback's coach. He'll also need to have a good succession plan in place in case his coordinator excels and quickly leaves for a head coaching position. Washington currently has Eric Bieniemy as the offensive coordinator and Tavita Pritchard as quarterback's coach. Both are under, con uh, under contract for 2024. Houston made it work after hiring a defensive-minded coach in D'Amico Ryans and picking a quarterback at number two to play for first-year offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick. Quinn's best success in Atlanta occurred with Shanahan as his coordinator. The offense, with quarterback Matt Ryan and receivers Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley, ranked first in points and second in yards in 2016. The offense ranked top 10 in yards in each of Quinn's first in each of Quinn's final 3 seasons and was top 13 each year in scoring as well. Finding a quarterback is second on the to-do list. Since parting ways with Kirk Cousins after the 2017 season, Washington has started 12 different quarterbacks including 8 in Rivera's 4 seasons. 
The last Washington quarterback to be the primary starter for more than three seasons was Mark Ripon from 1989-93. With the second overall pick, Washington will be able to choose between quarterbacks Drake May and Jaden Daniels, assuming that Caleb Williams goes first overall. ESPN draft analyst Mel Kuyper Jr. projected Daniels to Washington in his latest mock draft. Other analysts have predicted May. Washington has not had a strong offense in a while, ranking 20th or worse in points and yards in each of the past six seasons. Since 1992, the organization has had one time when the offense ranked in the top 10 in consecutive years, and that was 2004 and 5. It has not ranked top 10 in scoring in consecutive years since 1990-1991. Was Quinn Washington's first choice? And this is John Keem again. It's hard to say. Many in the league anticipated Washington hiring Detroit Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson, but although he was a favorite target of at least someone in the commander's search, that wasn't a unanimous opinion. When Washington hired Peters last month, one source said that he was clearly the commander's top choice. But shortly after Peters was hired, one source said that there was no coaching candidate who stood out like Peters. While Johnson's withdrawal from consideration Tuesday surprised the team, it did not result in panic. Washington had not yet settled on one person, even if Johnson was considered a top target. Nobody had been offered the job. The commanders had not yet met with Johnson in person and, in fact, were en route to Detroit for an interview when they learned that he was staying with the Lions. Before Johnson's decision became public, multiple sources indicated that the hire would take place later in the week at the earliest. Later that day, Slowick signed a new deal to remain with the Texans. He, too, was on the commander's list, although considered an unlikely hire. Former Baltimore Ravens defensive coordinator Mike McDonald was another top candidate. Washington liked him. He liked Seattle, where he ended up. But it's not certain that Washington liked him more than the other possibilities. Whatever the case, there's a long road ahead for the commanders. If Quinn can lead them to a better place, it won't matter how this process unfolded. If not, they'll have to revamp their process for the next time. What are you hearing around the league on the hire? And this is from Graziano. The sense I got over the past week or so was that Washington liked Mike McDonald a lot and that he may well have been the commander's top choice. Yes, even ahead of Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson. But I also kept hearing that Washington liked Quinn a lot and that his previous head coaching experience matched what the team was looking for in an overall organizational leader. So obviously, once McDonald ended up in Seattle, it felt like Quinn would get the job unless the commanders decided to open it up to new candidates. Now that Quinn has the job, the questions turn to who will run his offense offense, and obviously who will play quarterback. Washington has the number two pick in the draft, so you have to think this staff will be working with a rookie starter. I think this offensive coordinator hire will be watched very closely. Quinn did have a successful head coaching run in Atlanta, but his best years there were with Kyle Shanahan as the offensive coordinator. 
If he can hit a home run like that with this hire, it could go a long way towards determining the level of success that he can have in turning the commanders around. Who's the best quarterback prospect to fit at number two for Quinn to start his commander's tenure? And this is from Reed. LSU's Jaden Daniels. Quinn might approach this one from the standpoint of a former defensive coordinator who is the quarterback that he wouldn't want to face. And the fear factor associated with Daniels' dual threat ability makes him an appealing option for Washington, which needs a spark on offense. Daniels threw for 40 touchdown passes and ran for 10 more in 2023. Even though he is my QB number three right now, Daniels' combination of downfield passing ability and explosiveness as a runner makes him a candidate for the commanders at number two. So how would you grade this hire? Tannenbaum, an A-. minus. Quinn is an experienced coach who has been to the Super Bowl, and he made the Cowboys' defense immeasurably better over three seasons as their defensive coordinator. It's a solid move. All right, we will keep you posted on the goings-on in Washington as well as other hires around the NFL as they unfold. So this article is on Roger Goodell's presser, his press conference, that was held on Tuesday, February 5th. And some amazing news. The Eagles will host the NFL's first regular season game in Brazil on Friday, September 6th. This article by Rob Maddy, he's an NFL reporter for the Associated Press. It came out on February 5th, and it appeared in publications worldwide from Las Vegas. The Philadelphia Eagles will be the host team for the NFL's first regular season game in Brazil on Friday, September 6th, a day after the 2024 season opener, says Commissioner Roger Goodell. Goodell addressed gambling officiating, diversity, the Rooney Rule, and much more, including Taylor Swift's romance with Travis Kelsey in a nearly one-hour news conference held inside the Las Vegas Raiders locker room before players and coaches from the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers met the media for Super Bowl opening night. Goodell made news when he said the Eagles will play in Sao Paulo, Brazil, against a to-be-named opponent. It will be the first time in 54 years that the NFL has played a game on Friday night of its opening weekend. The Los Angeles Rams hosted the St. Louis Cardinals on Friday, September 18th of 1970. The game will be played at the Corinthians Arena, home to a Brazilian soccer team, the SC Corinthians. The stadium was used in both the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Olympics. The Eagles' opponent, along with the kickoff time, will be announced closer to when the 2024 schedule is revealed later this spring. Five regular season games will be played internationally in 2024. Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in London will host games featuring the Chicago Bears and the Minnesota Vikings. The Jacksonville Jaguars will return to Wembley Stadium as part of their multi-year commitment to playing in Britain. The Carolina Panthers will play in Munich, Germany at Allianz Arena, home of the Bayern Munich. Addressing Gambling 
Integrity of the game was a hot topic now that the Super Bowl is being held in the nation's gambling capital a decade after Goodell was adamant that legalized sports betting could lead to suspicious suspicions of games being fixed. It's our number one objective, gambling and outside gambling. The integrity of our game is critical, Goodell said. And so we spend a lot of time focusing on that, educating, making sure that all of our personnel are aware of our gambling policies in this case or in any other policy that can affect the integrity of our game. Ultimately, that is our primary job. Goodell said about 25 league employees had violated the league's gambling policy, while, quote, roughly 13 players, end quote, have faced discipline. If you're betting on the NFL, you were terminated automatically, he said. That's it. We take this incredibly seriously. We understand the risk. We did not make the decision. Ultimately, the decision was a decision by the Supreme Court. They legalized sports betting. We have to adapt. We have to embrace it. We have to be cautious. We have to be very thoughtful, and I think, in our approach. For the first time since 1974, Bill Belichick is not employed by an NFL team. Goodell was asked his thoughts on a Belichick-less league. You know, that guy is one of the great coaches in our history, Goodell said. He's extraordinary, and what he's accomplished, he's amazing to me. Goodell said that he had spoken with Belichick since the season ended for the New England Patriots. He's done so much for this league, Goodell said. He's changed the game in many ways. He's brought innovation, and I don't think anyone can take anything away from his record, whether he's coaching or not. I think he'll be missed, but I have a feeling that he'll still be around the game somehow. In 2007, Goodell fined Belichick a half a million dollars for his role in the Patriots' Spygate scandal. Streaming TV future? Many fans were upset when the AFC wildcard game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Miami Dolphins was streamed on Peacock. And while Goodell would not say streaming was the wave of the future, he did say a streamed Super Bowl was not going to happen on his watch. It is a reality and part of the NFL's future. Consumers are moving off paid television, he said. We have to be able to reach fans there. We have to fish where the fish are, and we have a lot of consumers on those platforms. Goodell said that 90% of the NFL's games were still on free TV, but the average age of the audience dropped by almost 10 years for the Peacock broadcast, which he added outdrew the same broadcast in the same window a year earlier. And addressing the Rooney rule. The NFL has nine minority head coaches after the latest hiring cycle, the most in league history. Increasing diversity in leadership positions has been a priority for the league, and Goodell said that 51% of the league's employees are either people of color or women. Asked if any, uh, asked if any consideration has been given to eliminating the Rooney Rule, a thought that some minority coaches and others have expressed, Goodell said that it will remain for the foreseeable future. The rule requires teams to interview at least one minority candidate for head coach openings. Not having it be necessary would be a wonderful world for us, Goodell said. I personally believe that it is still necessary. The Goodells are Swifties. Goodell 
His wife and their 22-year-old twin daughters have been Swifties since attending one of her concerts. He welcomes her interest in the NFL and the attention that it brings her fans. The commissioner brushed aside the conspiracy theory that Swift's relationship with Kelsey is scripted. Yes, Goodell has heard the conspiracy theories when it comes to the Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey and pop star Taylor Swift, whose romance has taken on a life of its own this season. He scoffs at such stories. Listen, I think anybody in this society, when they're in a public position, are going to be subject to criticism. The idea that this was in a script or that this was pre-planned, it's nonsense. It's frankly not even worth talking about. We see two people that are really happy together, having fun together. I think that's wonderful, and I wish them well. They're both wonderful people. The fact that they're both involved with football in some fashion through their relationship, that's great. We welcome it. Hard to picture Roger Goodell as a Swifty, but there are stranger things in the world. All right, turning now to Broncos broadcaster Larry Zimmer. I've been trying to get to this for a while. Longtime Colorado Broncos broadcaster Larry, Larry Zimmer dies at 88. This article came out on January 1st by the Associated Press, and it appeared in publications worldwide from Boulder, Colorado. Larry Zimmer, the longtime radio voice for the University of Colorado football and basketball, who also called Denver Broncos games, died on Saturday at the age of 88. The school announced his death before the third-ranked Colorado women's team hosted number six Southern California. A moment of silence was planned before the game. Zimmer had been hospitalized for the past 10 days in Lakewood. He received numerous visitors and text messages from the university and the Broncos before his death. Zimmer spent seven decades in broadcasting since his college days at Missouri. He called 486 football games at Colorado, 22 bowl games, and 525 men's basketball games. He also worked 536 preseason, regular season, and postseason games with the Broncos, including four Super Bowls. In addition, he was on the microphone for football games at the University of Michigan, 51 games, and 34 games for Colorado State. His voice was synonymous with our athletic program, and he was most beloved by our coaches, players, and fans, says Colorado Athletic Director Rick George. He is truly a part of our overall athletic history. Zimmer was hired in 1971 by KOA Sports Director Bob Martin to be the play-by-play person for Colorado football games and to serve as the color commentator for the Broncos. Zimmer also had a stint as the voice for the Denver Rockets, who were members of the American Basketball Association and the Colorado Caribous of the North American Soccer League. In the middle of the 2014 season, Zimmer experienced health issues and was hospitalized for five months. He returned in 2015 for what was his final season. His last home game was on his 80th birthday against Southern California, where he was honored in a pregame ceremony. There was only one guy in the country who sounded like him, and when you heard him, you knew it was a CU or Bronco game, says Alfred Williams, a standout at Colorado from 1987 to 90, and who also played for the Broncos. 
Born on November 13th of 1935 in New Orleans, Zimmer attended LSU before he transferred to Missouri and earned a degree in journalism in 1957. He broke into the business by broadcasting high school football and basketball games in Columbia, Missouri and Lawton, Oklahoma. He is survived by his wife of 51 years, Bridget, son Lawrence III, daughter Tracy Robb, and granddaughter Shannon Robb. All right, turning to baseball now. This article by Kyle Newman came out on February 13th, and it appeared in the Denver Post. Jenny Kavnar leaves the Rockies for the A's to become the first female primary play-by-play voice in Major League Baseball history. Jenny Kavnar is making Major League Baseball history again. Kavnar, a longtime member of the Rockies TV broadcast team, is leaving the organization to become the play-by-play announcer for the Oakland Athletics. The move makes the Smoky Hill High School and CSU alum the first female primary play-by-play voice in MLB history. Prior to Tuesday's announcement by NBC Sports California, Kavnar spent 12 years with the Rockies. During that time, she served on the broadcast in various capacities while emerging as a trailblazer for female sportscasters. I'm really excited, but it's bittersweet, too, Kavnar said. Colorado is home, and the Rockies gave me an amazing decade. The Rockies gave me amazing opportunities, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to producer Allison Vigil for pushing me in this direction. And I'm thankful to all of the guys on the broadcast team, Ryan Spielborgs, Corey Sullivan, Jeff Husson, and Drew Goodman, for giving me their help in making this an attainable dream. Now, the fact that I'm really going to go do it is really an exciting next chapter for me, and it's a pretty big one. In 2015, Kavnar became the first woman to do radio color commentary for a National League game when she was in the KOA 850 broadcast booth for a Rockies game against the Diamondbacks in Phoenix. Three years later, she became the first woman since 1993 to do play-by-play for a big league TV broadcast when she called a Rockies-Padres game at Coors Field. Then, in 2021... Kavnar became the first woman to be named Colorado Sportscaster of the Year by the National Sports Media Association. After interviewing with the A's and auditioning for them during winter meetings, Kavnar will start next week in Oakland, but will keep her home in Colorado. Her husband, Stephen Spurgeon, is a Denver firefighter, and the couple have two young kids. Most of my schedule will be be the road game, Kavnar said. I will do 95 games. Kavnar, the daughter of Colorado High School baseball coach Hall of Fame Steve Kavnar, has seen her national profile rise over the past few years while also taking on more play-by-play jobs outside of baseball. She routinely hosts and contributes to shows on MLB Network Radio, and also did play-by-play for men and women's college basketball on FS1 and the Pac-12 networks. Prior to her work with the Rockies, Kavnar spent five seasons as a reporter-slash-anchor for the Padres and about five years as a sideline reporter-slash-show contributor covering San Diego State Athletics. The A's will play their 2024 season at the Oakland Coliseum before a planned relocation to Las Vegas. Before that move becomes official in 2028, 
when a stadium in Las Vegas is expected to be ready. The franchise's location will be in limbo for the 2025 through 2027 seasons. For now, Kavner isn't worried about all those moving pieces. She's just excited for the opportunity to call games. There is obviously a lot of things happening off the field with the franchise that are so out of everyone's control, Kavnar said. I'm just excited to dive into the team that they have on the field and the stories that are there to be told. Goodman, the Rockies' longtime TV play-by-play announcer, said that he is thrilled for Kavnar's new opportunity. She has worked her tail off at her craft, and most importantly, she's a tremendous person and teammate, Goodman said. I'm really happy for her and her whole family. Rockies manager Bud Black said he's confident that Kavnar will hit the ground running in Oakland after watching her morph from an analyst into a bona fide play-by-play announcer. I worked with Jenny in 2007 when she was first hired by the Padres, and I have seen her grow into an excellent on-air talent. I am so looking forward to watching her call A's games, said Black. With Kavnar's departure, the Rockies broadcast team has a major hole to fill. Spring training begins this week with pitchers and catch reporting to Salt River Fields in Arizona, but the club has still yet to announce its TV broadcast plans for 2024 after AT&T Sportsnet was shuttered at the end of last year. An announcement on the Rockies' TV plans for this year is expected to come soon. But that was the local take. Here is an article that delves in on the national take of things. This article by Marlene Lentang came out February 13th, and it appeared on NBC News. Jenny Kavnar is the new play-by-play announcer for the Oakland A's, replacing longtime announcer Glenn Cooper, who was fired after he used a racist slur on live TV last year. Excited for the next chapter. Let's go, Kavnar tweeted. Kavnar was the first woman in a quarter century to call TV play-by-play for an MLB game when she did so in 2018. In 2015, she became the first woman to provide analysis for a National League series on the radio. It's a dream come true to join the broadcast team for the Oakland A's and their rich baseball history, said Kavnar, a five-time Emmy winner. Growing up the daughter of a baseball coach, I have loved the game from a young age, along with the stories, history, and relationships the game provides, he continued. I'm excited to start my 18th season as a major league broadcaster with my good friend Dallas Braden and share our experiences with the loyal fans of the athletics as we go on this ride together. Braden, her new broadcast booth partner, welcomed her with a video message on X saying, I could not be more honored to sit next to the first woman in baseball history to assume the role as play-by-play announcer. It's a great day for baseball. It's a great day for women in baseball. Matt Murphy, the president and general manager of NBC Sports California and NBC Sports Bay Area, called Kavnar a groundbreaking professional who's earned the admiration of fans and her peers throughout her career. We're very excited for her to join our excellent team and lead our A's coverage starting this season. Hooper, who had called the A's games for 20 seasons, did not leave on good terms. He was suspended after he used the N-word in a discussion about his visit to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum on a May 5th pregame broadcast of a game against the Kansas City Royals. 
In a statement last year, Hooper said that he had visited the Negro League's baseball museum in Kansas City, Missouri, to learn about the difficulties and social barriers African-American players endured in the MLB's early years. In my excitement, I rushed through the word Negro, resulting in my very unfortunate mispronunciation. Hooper issued a public apology for the terrible but honest mispronunciation and stressed that racism is in no way a part of me. Hooper had expressed frustration over his termination, saying, I wish the Oakland A's and NBC Sports would have taken into consideration my 20-year career, my solid reputation, integrity, and character, but in this current environment, traits like integrity and character are no longer considered. Kavnar joins a small but growing group of women doing play-by-play in major pro sports. In 2021, Lisa Byington became the first full-time play-by-play announcer for a major men's professional sports team, the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks. The same year, Kate Scott became the second, covering the Philadelphia 76ers for NBC Sports Philadelphia. In other baseball news, the San Francisco Giants are bringing back Dusty Baker as a special advisor. This article came out on January 18th by the Associated Press, and it appeared in publications worldwide. From San Francisco, Dusty Baker is back for a third stint with the San Francisco Giants. A longtime manager will return as a special advisor to baseball operations and work on both the baseball and the business side. I've enjoyed my stops at various places, but I'm happy to be back home, Baker said in a statement. I look forward to providing guidance to the organization and helping the Giants get back to the top in a very tough division. Baker, who is 74, retired from the Houston Astros after last season, his 26th year as a major league manager. He said then he still has more to offer a team and hope to take on an advisory role. Baker managed the Giants from 1993 to 2002 before coming back to work as an advisor to CEO Larry Baer during a break from managing in 2018 and 19. We are so excited to welcome Dusty back into the Giants organization, Baer said. Dusty's experience, knowledge, and the successes that he's had in his 50 years of baseball will be an invaluable piece to the success and continued development of our baseball operation efforts both on and off the field. I'm thrilled to be on the same team as Dusty again, says new Giants manager Bob Melvin. He's been a great friend and mentor to me over the years. More than anything, I don't have to manage against him anymore. Welcome home, Bake. Bake is still beloved in the Bay Area, and this very well could be his final baseball stop in what almost certainly will be a Hall of Fame career. Well, that's all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303 786 7777.